0: Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 3. We cover two whole chapters today, 3 and 4. I only have a small portion of that full text before you. It's chapter 4. But we will start at the beginning of chapter 3 in our study. So if you don't have your Bible with you, The Pew Bible, it's page 568. 568 is where you'll find chapter 3 start, and I will ask you to have that open because I'll refer to verses as we walk through together, and it'll just be much more profitable for you as you see the passage uh, when we come across it. Uh, Isaiah 3 and 4, it's really part of a section that starts in chapter 2, 2 through 4. If you were to outline uh, the book, you would have that as a a section with bookends on it. Chapter 2 begins with a beautiful vision of the future for God's people when God makes the whole world know of Christ, the Messiah, uh, through the people of God. And chapter 4 ends with a similar picture, kind of like bookends. But in between, he deals with the solemn reality of what's going on in Judah at this time. Uh, The people of God really had become just like the nations around them, The northern part of the kingdom was taken by Assyria, assimilated by Syria. You could not tell the difference between Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and Assyria any longer. In Judah, they weren't much better. Uh, Still were a sovereign state, but it was threatened by their moral undoing. And God was calling Isaiah to preach a message of repentance to the people of God about their worldliness, about their their devotion to man rather than their devotion to their covenant God. And chapter 3 ends that full disclosure about what's happening with the people of God, and then chapter 4 gives some hope. Now, we always have to be careful. When you're opening up an Old Testament prophet, it's written 700 years before the time of Jesus, 2700 years ago for us. How does the message of Isaiah apply to us as believers now living where we do? certainly there's a timelessness, a transferable nature of the message that will apply to people of all ages, God's people especially. But when you see God defend his character like he does, even with his own people, this is something that is truly timeless. Uh, These are things that God would bring to account in any generation with any nation, at least in a general sense. We'll see that as we look at the passage. While not losing sight of the particular application that Isaiah has for Judah at this time and us by extension. I'll begin this morning's study by looking at verse 2 to verse 6. I'll read those verses. They're on the insert in your bulletin of chapter 4 of Isaiah. It says, and Isaiah 4, 2, "...in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel." And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning." Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we study this portion of your word, this prophecy that Isaiah gave, we read of judgment and your discipline upon your people. We see the hope that you give in Messiah. We see how you bring the idols of man to nothing. Lord, you strip away our false foundations and shake misplaced devotions. Lord, please send your spirit to illumine our minds so that we might understand and apply your word. Please, give us conviction about our sin. And once again, drive us to our Savior. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned, chapter 2 begins really this wider section. In chapter 2, verse 22, the last verse we studied, really summarized the message so far. As Isaiah calls to the people of God to transfer their fear and their reverence from man to God, where it ought to be. In verse 22 of chapter 2, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? We know by this pronouncement of Isaiah that there was too much trust in man on the part of those who lived in Judah. Too much reverence for man, not enough for God. Too much devotion to man and what man thinks, what man acquires, what man accumulates, what man accomplishes. Too much. Focus on that and not nearly enough on what the God of the universe thinks. The true Redeemer, uh, their true deliverer. That's who they should be concerned with, yet they're concerned with what man thinks. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Judah's fear of man rather than the fear of God was causing them to go down a terrible road of sin. Their counterparts to the north had already been overrun and assimilated, and now we have. The same threat happening to those who lived in Judah, to the kingdom of Judah. The same fate would be theirs. They stayed on this road. And so Isaiah brings this message to bring about repentance among the people of God. He brings this universal message about God's righteousness and God's call for right worship to be placed towards him. He brings it to those who live in Judah so that they would repent. And that's the response the people of God will have when they're confronted with their sin. They recognize it. They don't make excuses. They know it's true, and they repent, and they turn to God. And that's the driving reason for Isaiah's prophecy. God shakes us. He shakes us free from the things that we devote ourselves to that are not him. He shakes us from our misplaced devotion, which is another way of saying idolatry. He shakes us from the idols that we worship, and he drives us to Jesus. First of all, we'll see as we look at the passage starting in chapter 3 that idolatry is our basic sin problem. At least it's the manifestation of our sin. We worship self. We worship other things, anything but God. We devote ourselves to it or we adore things that aren't God. Uh, Starting with ourselves, it's usually a drive from self to get the things we want or do the things we want to do, feel the pleasures we want to feel, That's all idolatry. It's self-worship. It's focus on meeting our own needs and desires. Idolatry is our sinful problem, and we see it's true here. We have seen it already through chapter 2. It just picks up more in chapter 3. If we're not acknowledging God's superiority and greatness, ultimately, who are we then exalting? We're exalting someone if we're not exalting God. We're prone to worship something. We're made to worship something. Do you really know anyone who worships nothing or adores nothing, is devoted to nothing? We idolize people who appear successful by worldly standards. We idolize people who even appear selfless or are giving. We idolize those people sometimes. Uh, we may idolize or adore or worship people, human accomplishments perhaps, things they do that we think are great. We fall in love with accomplishments that people have, stuff, status, you fill in the blank. We worship all sorts of things. We adore all sorts of things that are not God. We forget God. I find interesting in one of uh, the prayers of Lincoln, for all you may think of what his personal faith was, the words of this prayer are pretty amazing. Think of them just at least generically. Think of them for Judah. He prayed in 1863 that we've been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. That could have been said of Judah in Isaiah's day, without question. That's exactly the problem. They are focused on everything but the thing, the one who actually gave them their deliverance, who could keep them delivered. Instead, they were more concerned with the nations around them, about pleasing everybody, about keeping peace, about keeping security, keeping stability, a sense of comfort at all costs. Idolatry, that's our sinful problem, and it's a catastrophic one. It causes us to worship our security and our status more than anything. We want security for our our accumulated stuff, and we compromise God's principles to get it. That is security. Judah no longer looked like the unique and peculiar people of God. Judah looked like the rest of the world, chasing after things that moths and rust destroy, no matter what the moral cost. The text depicts a people far gone into idolatry already. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Their speech was independent of devotion to God or credit to God. They're saying things that ignore God's hand in their life and in their existence. By elevating themselves and other nations, for that matter, they're defying his glorious presence. Uh, They want to glorify other things, which defies the true glorious one, the one true God. The glorious one, God himself, is being overlooked in favor of man in the life of Judah. Of course, this ignoring of God moves them along in their defiance, and it moves them along in their sin. Look at verse 9. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Uh, If they are devoted to the opinions and the acceptance of other people, the nations especially around them, why would they care about God's opinion of their actions? We serve our idols. We care about what our idols think not God. Pleasure, possessions, status, security. These things have been enumerated in chapter two already. When we serve these things, we stray from God. In verse 16, you recall back in chapter two, there was a confrontation of the men of, of Judah and their lack of leadership. And now you come to 16 and the daughters of Zion are focused upon manifesting how they have come into this idolatry now. It says in verse 16 of chapter three, The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. This picture of arrogance, of I'm better than you, Uh, look at me, Uh, I'm all that. Verse 17, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. He will confront this kind of worship. It's self-worship that's being displayed here now in a social setting. The people are exhibiting a pride about themselves. The women walk with arrogance. They're haughty. They walk with outstretched necks, looking down upon others. The self-worship is obvious now here by this description. Uh, Idolatry, even the worship of self, is our sinful tendency. This is what we do. And God will eventually bring discipline upon those who worship anyone or anything but himself. The description of his discipline, which runs throughout the passage, further reveals the kind of idolatry that was characterized in Judah. Look at verse 18 as you get a full picture of what's going on, what's being flaunted. And not so much what is being flaunted, but what the flaunting reveals. Verse 18, in that day the Lord will take away the finery. Now in that day it's a reference again to the coming of Messiah, and Messiah laying bare all these things, already introduced in chapter 2, in that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. He tries to capture everything they were wearing or displaying in a sense of worshiping self and drawing attention to self. It's not a specific condemnation to finery, but there's a condemnation of the haughty spirit that prompted the flaunting of these things that was characteristic of the hearts of God's people at this time. All these things have something in common. They're temporal. They'll fade. It's foolish to love those things. And God says he'll make them fade faster. Verse 24. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. You know, I like to give illustrations to help describe what Scripture is describing, but Isaiah doesn't need my help. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword. And this is an important word of condemnation. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. So they won't even have uh, the ability to uphold their sovereignty as a state because their armies will fall. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. There will be no defense to the oppression that will come when these nations come upon Judah. The idols that we worship, especially the material ones, will fade. It's foolish to love them so much. They have a very, very short lifespan. It's certainly those who are parading with their fine jewelry and other symbols of their high earthly status. They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're not thinking about how quickly this stuff rusts and fades. And that's the problem. They're not thinking of anyone but themselves in the here and the now. Life is all about their pleasure, their comfort. Life is all about them. And when we trade in devotion to God for that kind of devotion, we waste the minutes and the days and the years, and they're gone before we know it, and we wasted them on things that fade away. And then what's worse, while we're accumulating these things, while we're trying to build up these things, we are ignoring God's call to provide for those who have needs. That's a recurring theme that we'll come back to in Isaiah. No time for those who are needy. We're too busy chasing after getting more stuff. Only time for the worship of self at any cost. Now I know that we again have to be careful when you're reading an Old Testament passage. It's one of the big, I think, uh, misapplications of the Bible when someone says, "Well, this is a message to Israel and the Old Testament God's people, and now it should be to America, God's nation." That's not true. America is not God's nation. There's a strong contingency of God's people in this nation, but we have to be careful to see how they apply. Certainly there are some timeless truths, though, that we can see here. As God looks at arrogance, it doesn't matter what nation it is. God does not hold arrogance for long before he brings discipline. And if you think about the history of nations, nations rise and they fall. We, we think of them in those terms, rising and falling, rising and falling. So, God will allow even a godless culture to rise for a time in its outward look, in its prosperity, but never for that long. He brings judgment, He brings times of rising and times of falling. And we can see that for sure. And it's happening to Judah in this passage, as Isaiah predicts it will occur for them. And we see that to be true even in our own land. America is a nation that has fallen deeply in love with itself, its prosperity, its perception of what liberty is, its security. America promotes a pluralistic spirituality. That is, we should judge no particular beliefs. We should allow for all these things, just like Judah did. Let all these nations who are helping with our prosperity, let, let's have with their religions and with their philosophies and their worldviews and their practices. And that's what Judah looked like at this time. It looked just like Assyria. just Still a sovereign nation, but just like Assyria. It had bought into that plurality of the gods and of the practices. America promotes a pluralistic spirituality unless a spirituality gets at all into judgment. If it says another spirituality can't be true, now we're, now we're uncomfortable. Biblical Christianity has been on the outs in America for a while. A belief system that calls for the exaltation of God and the humility of human beings doesn't go well in a land that wants freedom to see its stuff and its status maintained. You know, I have long thought that most elections in this country, at least recently, are ultimately decided not by what a candidate thinks about, say, foreign affairs, or about abortion, or about marriage, or about immigration, or about any other hotly debated issue, you know, the 15 different issues that they all talk about. But really what it seems to come down, and it doesn't matter what party it is, what, comes, what, what resonates with people in America today is how will this person maintain our prosperity? How will they keep our checkbooks looking good? How will they keep things going financially well? We, you know, whatever else we may disagree on, at least keep us prosperous. We just love our stuff and our security and our stability in our way of life. And we don't want anything to threaten that. We turn a blind eye to all sorts of other things if they'll keep the economy going judah was about their economy things were going well they were prosperous they didn't want this to be shaken but their hearts were far from devoted to god even national security has to do with defending our standard of living our ability to be prosperous our security with the stuff Well, Judah was ultimately concerned about maintaining her idols. And this is what Isaiah is speaking to And the spirit of God works conviction in the people of God to recognize this. And God shakes us free from our misplaced devotion when we see this clearly. And that's what happened, of course, for the faithful in Israel in this time. And I hope it happens when we hear this again. God brings discipline to arrogant men and societies in his time. The godly recognize the sin They see God's discipline, they repent, they worship God. God uses tough circumstances to shake us free from our misplaced confidence and devotion. Notice how the passage at the beginning of chapter 3 describes God's approach to bringing discipline to Judah in that day. He says in verse 1, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The most basic things in a prosperous land are being taken away. So when those things get taken away, Judah is going to take notice. I mean, it's one thing to have all these these fine items that were described earlier in the passage that comes later that I read earlier. But it's another thing when you don't have food and water. That's very basic, and that really reminds us where it all comes from. If you don't have food or water, it doesn't matter what your bracelet looks like or your handbag looks like or how big your army is or what chariots you have. None of that matters when you can't eat or drink. And we're reminded immediately of who provides all of that. Many places in the Old Testament give God the credit for every meal. In Psalm 34, the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And, of course, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, to depend every day on God for the provision he gives us, food and water. That ancient prayer the Jews would pray, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. The Lord says that he will, by discipline, take away support and supply. But that's not all that he says he'll take away. Look at verse 2. He'll also take away the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder. Do you see what he's saying? All your securities, all the things that you think make you safe, all the things that you think uphold you or keep you in your place. I'm going to take these away. Verse 3. The captain of the 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert of charms. God would move to strip them of their many social securities because of their misplaced devotion. He would take away their military security. He would take away their civil security. He would take away their spiritual leadership. He would take away their general leadership, their counsel, and even their strange comforts like magicians and experts in charms or their horoscopes, whatever other lame, false thing they go for to decide what the future may hold. Perhaps what's most alarming about their coming discipline is the removal of faithful, effective leadership. See this closely. Verse 4. Don't miss this. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. One of God's major disciplines upon his rebellious people, or to nations in general, is to give them inept and unqualified leaders. Rather than men of experience, men of care, men of empathy, wisdom. He gives them the equivalent of children to rule them. Verse 4, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Now as I, even now in our day, look at the frontrunners, let's say, just for the U.S. election, I don't mean every one of them. And I mean both parties. I can't help but think of how God disciplined Israel in Isaiah's day. Because of their sin and their rebellion, he gave them inept and unqualified leaders. Certainly it is true that one way that God can judge is by depriving people of worthy leaders. Alec Moyer, who writes a commentary that's a couple decades old, says this about this particular passage, this verse 4. He says divine judgment on society begins to manifest itself in the disappearance of solid leadership, in the appearance of immature, capricious leaders. Society becomes divided, the age gap opens up, values are at a discount, and those who should be despised take the initiative. An air of despair dominates elections. All this arises from moral and spiritual causes. It is not the result of failures of policy, but of speaking and acting against the Lord and provoking him. Blatant sin inviting its just reward. And what's the result of such leadership? Verse 5, And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow, and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to, their el- to the elder, and the despised to the honorable, that's Judah. That's today. Yes, there will be a natural failure to, that comes from inept leadership. There's a natural outflow. But there's also the hand of God moving discipline as these things unfold. There is a social disintegration that happens under such leadership. Verse 6 and verse 7. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. No one wants to rule, so they're grabbing someone, say, You lead, you should lead, and you get this heap of ruins. Boy, that's exciting. Verse seven In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. I don't want that mantle. There's a disdain for taking the mantle of leadership in a place, in a time when no one respects or reveres God. And every man-for-himself mentality will only tolerate uh, leaders who allow for a sort of moral anarchy. See, the liberty most people want is liberty not to be told what to do. They want the liberty not to be judged. They want the liberty to do whatever they want to do, and you should not say otherwise. That's the liberty they want. And if a leader won't promise that, we don't want the leader. How can you possibly lead like that? Who would want to be a leader in such a situation? That's why in verse 7, you can see the frustration and the response I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. You know, honestly, I think we're at a point nationally when I see a candidate who is honest, balanced, reasonable, not beholden to special interests, compassionate, principled, competent, and spiritually mature. And I think immediately, no way they could get elected in this country but God promises Judah that he will shake them of their misplaced devotion. Look at verse 10 in chapter 3. This is an important verse that we'll return to. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Now that's an important small refuge of a promise in a verse that we'll come back to. It's Tell the righteous, the ones who respond to this message, who see the sin, want to repent of it, want to turn from it, that it will be well with them. It doesn't say they'll avoid the hardship, but it says it'll be well with them. It's an ultimate sense to that. But look what follows. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. It's the boomerang effect of sin. When you throw out sin, it comes back at you. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. You see, with this self-worship that had built up in Judah, there was naturally, naturally uh, an overlooking of those who needed help most. And they became more oppressed in that self-worshiping environment, as you can imagine. My people, infants, are their oppressors. And women rule over them. This is a sign of weakness in this time. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Don't you see what you have become? He says to Judah. The Lord has taken his place, verse 13, to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. He'll start with the leadership, he'll go right there. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses, and you're accumulating. You have left out people who don't have enough. Verse 15. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The self-worship that got Judah to the point of God's discipline was not just about their selfish pursuits. In pursuing more and more for themselves, they were bringing oppression upon others. A big aggravation of the prophet and a big aggravation of God is the oppression of the poor and the needy in this self-worshipping time in Judah's history. God would bring judgment to Judah the way that he brought judgment to Israel. In this specific case, it meant foreign oppression as we see that many would be killed in battle. Many would be lost in battle. Something the Israelites were not used to. They would be forced to fight in wars that they could not win in order to shake, shake them of their misplaced devotions. Wars and oppression like this were always supremely costly to the whole society, especially to the male population of a given country or society that happened in Judah. That's what's referred to in the first verse of chapter 4. If you think for a minute about the toll of war, go to World War II. And if you look at the totals, the military dead, I'm not talking about the millions beyond that. It's incredible and overwhelming when you see it. But if you just look at the United States, the United States lost almost a half a million soldiers in World War II. Half a million. That's close to 3% of the population in that day. That doesn't sound like a large percentage. But if you were alive at that time, I'll bet anything that you knew more than one person who died in World War II. If you were living in a would yes, anybody, I remember my father talking about this neighborhood, every, all these big Italian families, every family lost at least one son. That's just America. If you were in Germany, 13% of the population was lost in the war, and I'm talking just soldiers now, 13%. The Soviet Union, 20% of their overall population were lost fighting the battle. Belarus, you don't think much of a small country like Belarus. 25%, one out of four people died. Now, remember, these are all men at this point. So that's 25% of the whole Belarusian population, but they're all men. So it would be an obvious impact for generations how many were lost. Isaiah 4 verse 1 is referring to the outcome of this discipline that god would bring and seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes only let us be called by your name take away our reproach there's not enough men to be married seven to one they're crying out for a deliverance of this thing that they've undergone god was going to bring to judah a heavy discipline The message of Isaiah is about God's work of discipline and judgment, which is both terrible and beautiful at the same time. God would bring a loss to their stability, a loss to their finery, a loss to their pride, all things built on false foundations. But God would bring restoration, and he would bring opportunity for complete renewal. They would lose their idols, but they would gain Messiah's eternal riches. God's discipline is a grace that drives us to the Messiah for refuge and restoration. And that's what we have in the balance of chapter 4, the passage I read to begin. In verse 2 it says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of the remnant of Israel. Now there is a lot of debate about the identity of the branch of the Lord. And this is basically because uh, s- synonymous with the branch of the Lord, there's also this reference to the fruit of the land. Uh, but I think that the majority of the commentators get it right when they understand the totality of God's use of this label, the branch, Isaiah's included, to mean the messianic hope, the messianic salvation <clears throat> that will come in Christ. This is the first time Isaiah introduces it. But later we see a later prophet, Jeremiah, using this branch designation or label. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Later in Jeremiah 33, in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. This is a promise through David that there would be a king on the throne who's Messiah. Isaiah looks forward to this branch. So does Jeremiah, and so does Zechariah. Zechariah says, here, now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. So when we come to Isaiah 4, verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. This has to do with the Messiah and the new fruitfulness that he will bring. The Lord's branch means the one specially anointed to do God's saving work. That fruitfulness is seen against the backdrop of the famine and the cut off of supplies that the Lord will bring in judgment. The fruit will be the justification of the faithful ones of God. Isaiah gives a picture of the restoration that Messiah brings, starting in verse thir- 3. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem, remnant again, this concept of faithful remnant, will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. This parallels with what John Sees in his vision in Revelation. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, it will do so by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. God's presence will come, and this will be accomplished. Nothing can hide at that point. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flame, flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. Zion will be a new people, cleansed personally and socially. Intimate relationship with the Lord now. True beauty will be apparent, not just outward, but inward beauty. Failure of leadership in the old city will be put against new leadership. Perfect leadership that never fails in any of the ways that we fail. The description of what the Messiah would do is just what is needed in light of the judgment just pronounced, verse 6. There will be a booth... For shade by day from the heat, refuge. And for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. This pronouncement by Isaiah is convicting, but it drives us to refuge. It drives us to the messianic hope. It drives us to Christ. That's our response, knowing what we know, what we have seen fulfilled. Finally, when we read a passage like this, The obvious response is for us to repent, to acknowledge. We're sinners. We need God's refuge. But I think this kind of message can be a bit depressing, too, a bit alarming, if we're not careful to see how many ways it really does help us. I'll just give you three. First, I focused on verse 10, and I want you to think about verse 10. We see in verse 10 of chapter 3 the preservation of the righteous. He says, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. So keep walking in the light of the Lord no matter what happens around us. It does not promise immunity from the hardships that come to a given society that's in large rebellion to God. But it does promise it will be well with us, that we'll be preserved. And preservation is eternal for those who are in Christ, who are in Messiah, who understand the messianic reality and hope and lay hold of it. So we'll have that preservation assured for us no matter what might happen. But you know, there's something else that I think gives us more immediate hope, at least for the here and the now. When you look at the history of what happened when Isaiah was preaching his message, he preached when Uzziah was dying, a decent king. Jotham took over after Uzziah, really in the throes of the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And Jotham was a a godly king. Uh, through Jotham, there was a bit of a revival in Judah, responding to Isaiah's preaching and the kings being faithful and hearing the the prophets speak. There was a period of 15 years of of really good times for Judah that were secure and and, uh, free from the immediate threats of Assyria because of the obedience that they showed. So it's true that God does on occasion, even under terrible leadership, bring revival and periods of peace and spiritual vitality despite the overall trend downward. Jotham was followed up by Ahaz, who is a wicked king, who we'll see referred to in the text that's coming up next. But through the ministry of Isaiah, the work of the Spirit of God, the repentance of the king Hezekiah, a new era, a new golden age happened for Judah. Yes, it's true. They were trending downward on the whole, and they were eventually taken captive by the Babylonians. But time was bought, you might say, because of the repentance that happened and in Hezekiah's time, 40 years of amazing events occurred. There was only one other good king that came after Hezekiah. That is Josiah, the young child king. But what do we do right now if it's a difficult day? Well, the people of God are called to walk in the light of the Lord wherever they are, no matter whatever happens. And be active in this, Be active in the life of your church. Be active in the pursuit of God's glory. Serve others. Show Christ in your life. Be active in the political process, praying that God would not give us what we deserve. Give us another Hezekiah. And Lord, if you must give us spiritual babies or give us babies for leaders, can it be a Josiah instead? You know, 65 years of godly rule because of Josiah. Certainly God can use the church to bring preservation to the place we live. Finally, there's a day when we will have complete peace, restoration, and blessing in Christ. And we ought to live in light of that more than we live in light of the here and the now. We're so enamored and so in love with now that we don't think of the joys of eternity enough. Well, I leave you with the verses that started this section in chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and all the nations shall flow to it. What a glorious day when all will flow to the people of God to hear of the Messiah from God. In the verses that we just read in chapter 4 to close, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there shall, will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat, and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, humbled by the, your words' cutting nature. It just cuts right to the quick, right to the truth of the thing. Lord, I pray for conviction for us that our response would not be, look how evil everybody is out there. But Lord, just give us a sensitivity to the the ways in which we contribute personally to these things, how we struggle against idolatry. We struggle against loving the here and the now more than eternity. We struggle to think of others as more important than ourselves. Lord, give us freedom. Shake us from this. Give us a new devotion, a reverence for you, a love for you that we would really worship Jesus and that that worship would flavor all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.